0: G'day I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And we are in the same hotel room. We are in your home city of Sydney. We are in the Emerald City.
1: The Emerald City, the city of sin and there has been a protest going on outside Dave. We actually had to walk through it to get to the hotel room.
0: Yes they weren't protesting the Doctor Who show we, we <laughs> hastened to add. Are we, are we sure on that? Uh, well no actually. <laughs>
1: Folks, we are here, as you may have seen on the socials. Dave's come up to Sydney, so we said, look, why don't we just do an Ask Me or Ask Us Anything session and we'll uh, answer your questions sitting here together and have some fun this afternoon. So, Dave, are you ready for this? Are you strapped in? Yes, no, we've been out to lunch. We've had a good afternoon. We certainly have. And uh, thank you to everybody who wrote in with
0: this. Uh, Look, this is just a nice bonus episode. Uh, I'm ready to go, Rob. What are our
1: first questions? Our first questions, we actually have three questions from Jeremy Uh, frame of my mind on Twitter. He asks us these three things, Dave. Which classic writers would you like to see write for the new series, realistic or fantasy, no longer around or working? Which new series writer would pen a cracking black and white six-parter? And how about Jamie Elliott knocking the blues out of the finals? Sorry, I'm a pies man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll take that in reverse order, Jeremy, and first of all say that The only thing that made me feel better after your team knocked my team out of the finals by a point was watching your team miss out on the grand final by a point a couple of weeks later. So uh, there was a bit of schadenfreude there, uh, I will admit. Uh, But to the Doctor Who questions, and look, we did say, Rob, we should say at the start, we did say that they could ask us anything. It didn't have to be Doctor Who related. Uh, to take his Doctor Who questions, classic writer I'd love to see write for the new series. Look, fantasy-wise, the obvious go-to for me is Malcolm Hulk. Yeah. I think it would be fantastic to see him write something. I think in an age where television is overtly more message-focused than political, his writing would be really well suited to that. I think that the world-building it would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, David Whittaker is a great writer. I'd love to see him write as well. But being more realistic, I think that someone like Ben Aronovich would be a really obvious go-to. I think he's a really good writer. And although technically he didn't write for the show, Andrew Cartmel. Yes. He's still kicking around. He's a very good writer. Mostly does books now. But I would love to see Andrew Cartmel write a piece of Doctor Who. So there are a couple of really obvious ones. And look, the other obvious one would be Douglas Adams. Because yeah. if you had the chance to let
1: Douglas Adams write
0: anything else, you'd take it.
1: Well, the budget. Could live up to his ideas now i think
0: that's true or at least
1: closely approximate them
0: although i wonder whether writing without the limit of a budget would um make adam's writing slightly less good Mm. because one of the things that made him so creative and so effective was well how do i get around the budget okay i'm going to have an invisible spaceship because that doesn't need a budget and those those creative things that are sort of born out of necessity Mm. yeah that would be really interesting
1: yeah, I would have gone with Aronovich, so I'm disappointed you picked that one, <laughs> because frankly, I wanted to go with something realistic, and he is still around, still writing the Rivers of London series is huge, Yes. you know, within that sphere of, um, what do they call it, it's magical, it's like suburban magic, There's there's an actual term for yeah, the sort yeah. of thing he writes, and it's got a huge following, and they also make graphic novels of it and stuff, so he's still quite a big deal. Whereas, you know, some past Doctor Who writers, they, they wrote a Doctor Who, and that's all they really did. They've been in local theatre for the last 40 or 50 years, whereas Aronovich is actually still out there. And if Rona Munro can do it recently, then Aronovich can.
0: Yeah, and David Fisher, who obviously has recently rewritten or written versions of the novelisations of Stones of Blood and Androids and of Tara, mm. he's a very fun writer, and I think I would like to see more from him as well. Awesome. Which new series writer would pen a cracking black and white six-parter? Look, I've got a couple of go-tos there. I think the most obvious one is my favourite of the Chimnall era, and that's Vinay Patel. Mm -hmm. I think that he has written some very good stories, uh, ones that often have a lot more depth than other stories around them, stuff like Fugitive of the Jadoon, Demons of the Punjab. But also I think those stories represent a a vibe that is quite of the classic mm-hmm. and so i think he's a very good writer who would get classic who quite well and could write a story of enough depth mm-hmm. that it could do the six parts uh the other one that maybe people might not have considered is gareth roberts yeah who obviously is a fan of the classic who but i, I like some of the episodes he's written of new who I'm, I'm not as big a fan of others but when i look at the new adventures he wrote during the wilderness years he was one of the best of writing cracking stories that felt like the era Mm -hmm. they were in. And I reckon he could write a black-and-white six-parter really, really well. And, in fact, if I could just sort of make this happen out of fantasy, I would get him to do a six-part black-and-white TV version of The Plotters, which is one of my favourite Virgin Missing
1: Adventures. Nice. Nice. I would go with someone very obvious, and that's Stephen Moffat. Because Moffat, when he's doing multi-part stories, really revels in doing something really, really different in the second part. And I think if you gave him six parts to play with, where he could do really wildly different things from part to part and only in twenty five minute increments, that it'd be like Moffat on speed doing something that he normally does twice, doing it four times, five times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you could have you could have some really wild stories like that. Maybe something like The Chase, where it's something yeah. different every episode, something different's going on. I don't know. But I think Moffat really revels in multi-part stories and giving him six parts, I think, would be just killer.
0: Yeah, whereas I think RTD is very good at the in, tell your story, fast, hard, done. Yes. And I think that when he has to really labour plot and stretch things out, RTD's not at his best. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't pick him for a six-parter. No. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for that. Our next comes from Ian Martin of the All of Time and Space podcast and the Where All Stories in the End podcast. Yes. And he says, which cities would you like to see adventures set in? Any famous historical events from outside Southeast England that
1: should be explored? There are so many places, but I I might just narrow it down to like our corner of the world, like Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. You know, like how often have you seen Southeast Asia done in who? We've seen Asia, I guess, in Marco Polo but when have we seen Vietnam in there? Yeah. And I don't mean the war in Vietnam particularly, but, you know, what about going to some of those temples that they've got in the jungles? Yeah. You know, Angkor Wat. Is that in Vietnam or Cambodia? Cambodia, Cambodia. I think, yeah. Cambodia. yeah. that sort of thing. Something set around, around then, whether in modern times and something mysterious is going on in those ruins or when it was actually a, an ongoing concern and, you know, with, had just been built going back to that sort of era, I think that would be very good. So in terms of location, I think Southeast Asia is probably very underdone in Doctor Who and would be very interesting.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. And at least one of the picks I had sort of falls into that. I've got a couple of locations I think would be great to make a Doctor Who story. Taiwan, to me, would be an obvious go-to. You think about the Taipei 101 sort of area of Taipei, that's really good, but then you get out into the plantation area really different again. I think so. Mm -hmm. Taiwan would be somewhere I'd go. I think that Israel is just crying out to be filmed in, particularly when you get outside of the big cities, outside of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, mm-hmm. and you get down towards Masada and down towards the Dead Sea. That looks alien. Yeah. It just looks alien. So that would be really good. Uh, having just returned from Istanbul, that's just an amazing city. You could just film that. It
1: would just look incredible. Um, when you're when you're in Israel. Uh... Is it meant to be Israel, in terms of what you're seeing on screen, or are you using it as a planet? I'll use it as a planet. Okay.
0: Um, But that said, you know, if you were were smart, as a production team, you might go out to the desert of Israel and do one set on another planet, and then go into Jerusalem or Tel Aviv and do an historical Mm -hmm. um, setting there. So maybe you could do two stories for one in the same country.
1: Or like when they recorded Planet of Fire have some of it Earth and some of it a different planet and it was yeah. all recorded in the same place.
0: That would be really cool, yes. Yeah, so yeah. They, they could definitely do that. Like imagine Tel Aviv modern day and then we go to a futuristic planet that's down in the south of Israel. In, in terms of events, and, and I'll go a little bit serious here for a moment, as we know I returned from Eastern Europe a few mm-hmm. weeks ago and one of the things that I really appreciated going through places like Prague, Budapest, mm. uh, Krakow, Tallinn, was how skewed towards a western or british perspective my understanding of world war Two was in that yes i've read a lot about world war ii and the different things but my my go-to understanding of world war Two is dunkirk the blitz yeah. d-day fall of berlin it's a very british experience and what i realized is there's this whole experience of three four five years of nazi occupation mm-hmm. that we haven't done in doctor who and that we don't talk a lot about as a sort of English, Australian, I imagine American Mm -hmm. uh, people as well. So something dealing with those sort of events I think would be really good. Tallinn is a wonderful, beautiful city you could film in and tell that story. Um, Krakow is a story where you could do that. But uh, as was pointed out, I was listening to the recent episode of the uh, We're All Stories in the End podcast, which talked about the EDA autumn mist. Mm -hmm. And that included an interview with David A. McKinty, who said, look, Doctor Who has touched around the fringes of World War II a lot but it's never actually done the front lines of World War II. It's, okay, here's a naval base in Britain during World War II, mm. or here's that sort of thing, but what would an adventure actually with real Nazis in occupied Europe or at the front lines be like? And that's an event I think would be a really obvious one to do. Uh, and the other one that would be really interesting would be anything around Africa. Mm-hmm we haven't really done Egypt in Doctor Who we've done a bit of Rome Uh, yes we sort of have that episode or two with the Daleks master plan in Egypt but there's a lot more you could do there and then you go down to colonial South Africa whether it's something around Rourke's Drift whether it's something around the Jamison run there are some really big incidents in there that are absolutely ripe for yeah for, for telling the Doctor Who story.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, uh, Players, the, the PDA by Terence Dix was an anglo ball war PDA.
0: There you go, okay.
1: Yeah, and that was quite good. Um, question without notice, would somewhere like Krakow be cheap to film sometimes these Eastern European type places they film in because it's cheap?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. Poland seemed fairly cheap to me, and I think mm-hmm. they're very keen to encourage Western tourism and Western investment, so I can imagine they'll do quite a good deal. Mm. And, and, and again, like the old... The old city of Krakow is properly old yeah. and, and really beautiful to see. And, you know, you've got Auschwitz yeah. an hour's drive or so down the road. So you've again got some other locations. Now, is that too horrible mm. a setting for Doctor Who? It might be. It might be. But, yeah, you've, you've sort of got those those options. And I, I think, yeah, I think something in World War Two proper would be a very interesting place for the show
1: to go. Yeah. Depending on the tone and the doctor, maybe. That's right, yes. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Hi, guys. For your next pod, just in referral to your open questions, do either of you support a team in the English Premier League? Hope it's the mighty Arsenal. I'm sure you're sick of me tweeting about them. Ha-ha. And that's from Neela C, our regular correspondent.
0: Uh, the answer is yes. I'm not a huge soccer fan,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: I am genetically predispositioned to support Sunderland. Um, ha <laughs> I have I have relatives in the UK who are lifelong top tier season ticket holders for Sunderland. Whenever my dad is in the UK, particularly when he used to stay with my sister when she lived in Leeds, if there was a Sunderland game on he could get to, he would get the bus for two or three hours and pop up to Sunderland and go to the Stadium of Light and Mm -hmm. see the game and, and come back and um, when he was a bit younger, he used to go out to, you know, the 1am pub nights to go and watch Sunderland play. So, look, I'm not personally a big fan, but whenever somebody says, who's your English Premier League team, the answer is Sunderland.
1: Very good. I don't have one. I, I don't mind football. I have a local team I'm very fond of. In the Premier League, though, not so much. I do uh, have a friend from high school, Jason. Uh, Jason supports Arsenal, so there's there's a vote for Arsenal from my friend Jason. Fair enough. Thank you for that, Millers. <laughs>
0: Uh, one from Matt Barber from the Strangers in Space podcast. Every time I see an advance in special effects, I wonder about the future of loose cannon style recons. The question is, what technique do you think might be used in the future when they inevitably become cheaper? Deep fake, motion capture, a combination of them or something else entirely?
1: That's a great question. Um Obviously, deep fact technology is very fascinating and you can do a lot with it. But I I think, genuinely, the answer is within 3D animation. And that came home when we had the recent Troughton release um, of The Web of Fear. And there had been a fan... There was a trailer for the Web of Fear, Dave. Do you know what I'm talking about? There was yes. a, the trailer that came, went out the week before it aired, yes. back in the 60s, and someone had taken this trailer and actually animated it in a 3D way, and it looked better than the than the 3D, the real 3D version of the Web of Fear that came out earlier this year or last year, whenever that was, and that was done by a fan a decade ago. So I think. The ability is out there, well, it was out there 10 years ago for fans to do it. I think the ability is in 3D animation. And once they can get rid of the uncanny valley, as they call it, which is the sort of glassy look in characters' eyes, they're not quite looking at anything. They don't quite look human. <laughs> they don't quite look human. That's a perfect way to put it. Once they can sort of get past that, once they can sync the, uh, the voices up to the audio really well, I think actually doing the animation isn't that hard these days. I think that's where it's at, if that's not too long an answer.
0: Yeah, I went to a completely different reference point when I thought about this, and that is the Star Wars TV stories Mm -hmm. and what they've done to show a young Luke Skywalker at the end of Mandalorian Season 2 and Mm -hmm. in the first season of Book of Boba Fett. That technology, as you say, it wasn't perfect, and the uncanny valley, that that, that not quite human and naturalistic aspect is there, but Matt's not asking, what would you do to recreate these and put them on television? He's asking, what would you do to create a recon? Mm. And and I would say that that technology is at the stage now where it is beyond acceptable for a recon-style event. And it is now one of those things that people are starting to be able to do at home. And look, as we've seen with CGI technology over the years, stuff was cutting edge when B5 was doing it in 1995. Yeah. Five years later, someone can do it on a home PC. Yeah. And given another five years, this technology, I think, will be readily available on home PCs so they will probably start doing that look I've I've seen fan attempts at stuff like deep faking the Brigadier Mm -hmm. and that didn't work but it's not far off working Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and the other thing that I think uh, encourages that is that it would actually be fun for fans to do because if you imagine fans getting together and reenacting episodes of Doctor Who Mm -hmm. and then deep faking the characters Hartnell, Trout and whoever over the top of them not only have they got sort of the work of okay, getting, getting my computer and do it, but I suspect it would actually be quite, quite fun to make yeah. because they would get to be enacting all that, so that might encourage them to uh, to do it more. So, look, I don't have an answer because I don't really know the technology, but that's the touchstone I went to.
1: All righty. Question from Jamie Hailstone on Twitter. What's better, Aussie or British beer? I'm
0: not a beer drinker, so I can't give you an authoritative answer. I do know that I've seen more premium... Australian beers around the place than I have English. I don't know that the English premium market is as quite developed as ours, so probably Australian, but I would certainly take British whiskey over Australian whiskey. So I hope that (laughs) satisfies both sides.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And obviously, you know, going back 40, 50 years, Australians would always be making fun of the British and their warm beer. And of course the beer is not warm, it's just at sort of cellar temperature, which is, you know, can be quite cool in the UK. It's certainly not icy cold, it's not like drinking an icy cold lager. But when you drink beer at a sort of a cellar temperature, you can taste more of the flavours and the hops and all of that sort of thing that's going on, the malt and things like that. So I think, because I don't live in the UK and drink a lot of beer at cellar temperature, um, I'm sort of doing this based on, on what I think. I think British beer could be more interesting and complex because of the way it's served, whereas out here you just want something that is icy, icy, icy cold and just won't touch the sides as it goes down because you're basically drinking it on you know, 35, 40-degree days in summer. <laughs> so probably British beer is more interesting and complex than Aussie beer. I'll say that much. That's a much more
0: informed answer than I had.
1: There you go. Uh,
0: But continuing on with a Australian theme, Mark Cockrum says, have either of you ever actually chucked another shrimp on the barbie?
1: Sparingly. Shrimp being, of course, prawns. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've had a barbecue that's had seafood on it. I know it's a popular thing to do, but a lot of the barbecues I've had or have been to, no, I've not really had that.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's basically my answer as well. Personally, no, I never have. Barbecues absolutely are a big deal in Australia, and my go-to is usually sausages some steaks and a few rissoles. I wonder if up in the north that's a bigger thing, because I've never really seen shrimp either, or maybe it was an 80s thing.
1: Well, uh, the thing that needs saying is we don't actually call them shrimp here. No. Which, which, you know, the Americans always get confused by, (laughs) because it was an Australian ad that introduced that expression to the world. But no, uh, maybe they're cheaper up north. Get some big king prawns or tiger prawns or something like that. And if they're cheaper, maybe, and you just have them in abundance, you can just throw them on and grill them on the... It's, it's a lot more common in restaurants to get surf and turf. Absolutely. Which is steak and prawns. In a restaurant, absolutely. But no, I... No. No, sorry, Mark. The answer's no. Yeah. Another one from Mark Cochrane actually. Which classic series story would you like to see reimagined in the new series with today's production values?
0: Look, there are so many that I thought of here. My first instant go-to would have been one of the big Dalek stories, and I think particularly the Daleks Master Plan. Imagine that whole horde of Daleks ready to invade the galaxy, all the special effects with the Time Destructor, all the different locations. I think that done on a big budget would be really, really good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one that I did think of was Frontier in Space because that is a big sci-fi space opera. You've got lots of ships and you could have lots more. But also I think Frontier in Space would be really interesting because the story of that about two big empires poised on the brink of war and it almost becoming too hard to not have a war Mm. is a very relevant plot that could be done very well today. So that on a big budget I think would also be... Really, really cool. And look, it goes without saying, Invasion of the Dinosaurs with Good Dinosaurs <laughs> would, would be a masterpiece. But uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth or Frontier in Space for me. What about you, Rob?
1: I'm absolutely shocked you didn't go for an historical.
0: Well, I thought about it, but in some ways, historicals are almost like plays. Mm. And almost that more confined setting in something like Marco Polo, the Aztecs, actually adds to the story. because It becomes about... The words and not the story. Mm. Whereas something like a big space opera, you can change the whole vibe of dynamics by having 10 spaceships instead of one spaceship. And, yeah. you know, the Ogon spaceship isn't just uh, a few bits of whatever's left over in the workshop thrown together, it's a big spaceship.
1: Mm. Um, so that's
0: why I didn't. What,
1: okay. Where have you gone? Well, I, I just think of stuff like Reign of Terror or The Massacre. Right. And I think of watching TV series like The Musketeers which isn't quite the same mm-hmm. era, but it's certainly France hundreds of years ago with wooden buildings and big crowds of dirty, dirty people. And, you know, and you can just imagine Hartnell walking along, or the Doctor, I guess, in this case, because it's a, it's a modern retelling, the Doctor walking along, the camera just being able to pull back, and you can see there are hundreds of people there. Yeah. You know, and, and you just get the sense of scale and the sense of this is actually a big, bustling city full of dirty, desperate people. I, I would go with something like that you know
0: we went to very different places on that
1: we did indeed
0: but thank you to mark who of course hosts the all time and space podcast on which we both appeared together for their war machines episode
1: we did yes. Yeah.
0: in another universe paul darrow is the star of doctor who thoughts please on that and on any other show role swaps trout villa maybe throwing the bond films there too if you wish for example, Tom or Matt has Q or Tenet as 007. He would need bulking up. And that's from David Blanchard, who tweets out, at DGB259.
1: Darrow is the star of Doctor Who. It's, it's a tough one, given his personality, whether he would suit playing the Doctor. That's my first reaction. Like, I like him a lot, but is he Doctorish?
0: He would be different to the others. And and look, the guy was an actor. He can have different personalities. Mm -hmm. But he would certainly be a much more brisk doctor than others. And I think the relationship with the companions would be very different as well. Mm -hmm. He might be a sort of doctor where you do have an older Donna type companion. I think that would perhaps work better than the young girl sort of traipsing around.
1: He'd be very alien. He would be very alien. I, I, I can see that.
0: And look, we're, we're probably projecting Avon a bit too much here, mm. rather than Paul Darrow. That's true. But but you would probably explore that different morality of the Doctor mm. uh, with somebody like that. You know that 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 sense of sacrifice one to save a billion, I think would be a very interesting dynamic with someone like Paul Darrow playing the Doctor.
1: When someone like that though comes up against someone like the Master, do you fall into the territory of of the being too similar.
0: I think that's where you break the cycle and rather than having the master be a similar version of the doctor, uh, you'd go for a much camper, lighter master. I think something like Sasha Duran's master mm. sort of dancing crazily around a very still Paul Darrow would be a really interesting combination. Yes. So yeah, I could I could see that working well.
1: Absolutely. And there was a question about people coming into Bond films as well. Well, Tom or Matt as Q? uh, Look,
0: let's start with what I think is an obvious, and that is if you have to put someone from Who into Bond, surely it's Paul McGann. Mm -hmm. I think Paul McGann would be a fantastic Bond.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I think Matt Smith as Q is a really good pick. I don't know whether that's because we've really got in our mind at the moment the Ben Wisher...
1: They're similar in some Q. ways,
0: and whether we're just sort of casting Matt Smith as Ben Wisher rather than yeah. Q. I mean, look, John Pertwee is Q. Mm-hmm. Like that's an obvious one, surely. You could just see him tinkering around with gadgets and fast cars and all that sort of thing. Would what? you? Would you
1: make Pertwee Bond? <laughs> it'd be a very different sort of Bond to the Bond in the books, but it'd be interesting. I was going to say, what about Capaldi as M? I like that very stern Scottish man behind the desk. I was also going to say
0: Christopher Eccleston as Cerviland. Oh, right. they
1: got the same haircut.
0: They've got the same haircut, but gender swapping those those sort of roles I uh, think would be really interesting. And then do you go for somebody um, as a female Travis?
1: That'd be fun.
0: Janet Fielding as Travis.
1: <laughs> Jesus. Yeah.
0: There, 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 there's my pick. Christopher Eccleston as Cerviland and Janet Fielding as Travis. Great. And Paul McGann's Bond.
1: Does she have an Aussie accent? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Travis's accent changed
0: whenever the, when the actor played him, so
1: That's it. why not? Uh, moving on now, we have one from Mark Smith from the 42 to Doomsday podcast. He says, apart from Doctor Who, what other podcasts do you listen to? And I can see Dave reaching for his phone. As I am
0: I am reaching for my phone to see if I can give you a few uh, interesting ideas I
1: don't have this luxury, dear listener, because we're using my phone to record.
0: So, look, there are some other obvious sci fi type podcasts that I do listen to. I'm a big fan, as I mentioned on the show before, of Trek This Out, which is a Star Trek podcast, mm-hmm. which is really fun. Uh, I also work occasionally through Mission Log. They're a very professional and official, sort of, you know, authorized by Big Rod Roddenberry um, stuff. And sometimes that professionalism comes to the detriment, mm-hmm. but sometimes they have some really interesting takes, and they have access to a lot of really good background notes about Trek, so that's really interesting. Kevin Smith's Fat Man Beyond is something that I'm very fond of. Rob, I should give a plug to the Beatles World Cup.
1: Hey! Which
0: uh, you and Jono do co-host, and I do enjoy that. And look, also if there's a few other um, podcasts that I dip in and out of, um, The Pin Factory is done by some friends at the Adam Smith Institute, so i listen to that. Um, the Institute of Economic Affairs has a podcast, if the topic's interesting. I listen to that, and there's a tech policy podcast a friend of mine occasionally guests on that I occasionally listen to. But mostly podcasts tend to be escapist for me, so they're mm. very um, sci-fi, fantasy-type orientated. Mm. And obviously lots of Doctor Whos.
1: Yeah, I, I do have um, probably half a dozen Doctor Whos, so we, we won't mention those because that's not part of the question. Um, I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks lately. I've been ripping through a bunch of audiobooks, so I've not been listening to a lot of podcasts. But I would say the main podcast I listen to when I'm not doing audiobooks and when I'm not doing a Doctor Who podcast is Abroad in Japan, which is based on okay. the YouTube channel Abroad in Japan, where a guy called Chris Broad, so he is a broad in Japan. Right. Okay. Um, yep. right. He makes all these really wonderful videos on YouTube, really high production values. Over the years, he's gotten better and better at editing and all of that sort of stuff, and he travels around Japan having adventures which are great but he gets on the line each week with his mate over in the UK and they just talk about what's been happening in the news in Japan and it's very lighthearted and stuff and often there'll be anecdotes relating back to the YouTube channel so if you watch the videos it's sort of multi-textual and all of that sort of stuff yep. so I, I quite enjoy that podcast It's about half an hour each week of that one.
0: Nice we have a question here from the 42 to Doomsday Twitter feed and it's Two questions, so I'm going to take them one at a time on this occasion. Mm-hmm. The first one, Rob, please list out three positive things from your least favourite Doctor Who stories.
1: Gosh, least favourite Doctor Who stories. I mean, the most recent ones have been Whittaker. Whittaker episodes would have been my least favourite. Flux and such. Well, there were six episodes of that. Let's go there. Three positive things. One positive would be that at least one episode of Flux was good. That was the uh, the Weeping Angels episode. That was very good. I thought the Sontaran one was good. The Sontaran one. Uh, another positive from Flux was um, Azura and... Help me out. Azure and their pal. There was two of them getting yes. around. They had crystals stuck in their face. Yes. They got very campy and fun. Swarm. Swarm and Azua. Swarm that's and yes. Azure. They got very campy and fun at times. And I actually was disappointed when they went out like chumps really quickly in the end. Yeah. A third good thing about Flux. Oh, you're stretching me now. See, I didn't prepare for this at all. So I'm going to hand over to Dave. I'll keep thinking.
0: That's okay. Look, I've got a couple of obvious go-tos. Now, I'm going to to try and do one thing from three of my least favorite stories. Mm -hmm. The the obvious go-to that I have is from Creature from the Pit. Which I think is a terrible story. It's got a lot of problems. It doesn't work. But Jeffrey Baldwin's in it. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey Baldwin is really good. I'm not sure that he's in the same production as anybody else in that story. <laughs> but he's clearly just turned up doing his thing. And it's fun to see it. He works well with Tom. So, Jeffrey Baldwin, Creature from the Pit, is definitely a positive. Uh, look, Underworld, I think, is a terrible story. And. As a kid, I didn't appreciate at all what they were even trying to do. Mm -hmm. When you get a bit older and you start to read a bit more mythology and you start to realise all the clever little references they've got in there, like the P7E is Persephone, Mm -hmm. uh, Jackson is Jason, all those sort of little things, Uh, Herrick is Heracles. I I do appreciate that. And look, the story doesn't work. I don't think it's a good story, Underworld, but a good thing about it is just the cleverness of the references to, to ancient history. I think that's really good. Uh, Look, my least favourite story is Death in Heaven. One positive from that, uh, the scene with Cybermen outside St Paul's Cathedral Mm -hmm. was a very nice moment. Uh, Can't stand the episode apart from that, but Mark, that's my one positive from my least favourite
1: story. All right, and I've thought of another one for Flux, and it's that they had a crack. I think if it was an eight or ten part story, it may have been more coherent, and I think it would have been better all around, but they had a crack. In, In those six episodes, they tried to do a big sprawling story. And yes, we, we, we ended up with people not caring that most of the universe was destroyed. And yes, we ended up with all these strange things going on, which I think would have been smoothed out with more episodes. But they had a crack. And that's about the most positive thing I can say.
0: And the second one from 40 to the Doomsday is, what books have you read would make great TV shows
1: or films that Hollywood TV studios haven't touched? The big one for me is probably the Flashman series by George MacDonald Fraser. Okay. Which, think of Blackadder, but a whole lot ruder and cruder and very un-PC and written 40, maybe even 50 years ago in some cases, some of the novels. They ultimately are really good history lessons because Flashman gets around all the great European battles and colonial battles of the mid-1800s to early yep. nineteen hundred. So you actually learn a lot of history from them. and He is a real cad and a bounder and has written as one. So I don't think he would fly in today's climate because people would quite like the character, but you're not allowed to like characters like that anymore. (laughs) Yeah, right. So I don't think Hollywood has probably touched it for that reason. I think they made a Flashman movie in the early 70s with Malcolm McDowell as Flashman. Wow. But never again. In my heart of hearts, it is such a rich series with such a lot of daring do going on and all these great battles and things you know the history buff in me would really love to see that but the kind of character that flashman is he'd have to be rewritten for today's audience and then it's not really flashman is it so that's why it's not been made and never will be
0: fair enough i've got two and a half answers for this Mm -hmm. the first book that i'd like to see turned into a movie is a book called the glamour boys and it's a very good historical book and it's about a group of gay conservative MPs in the 1930s, mm. and, and there were a lot of them, which isn't surprising given how many gay members there are in the Conservative Party in the UK <laughs> these days, um, but there, were, there, there was a large number of gay MPs in the Conservative Party in the 30s, and these were a group of people who, for obvious reasons, would spend a lot of their summers and holidays in Berlin during the Weimar Republic, because it was a much more accepting city, mm-hmm. a much more tolerant city of mm. a, 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 a gay lifestyle. And so they were among the first people to really see what the Nazis coming to power meant.
1: Oh, wow. So they
0: were seeing their friends persecuted, disappearing. They were seeing what was happening to businesses. Mm -hmm. And they were the first to go back to Britain and go, this Hitler guy's the real deal. It's a big deal. We need to get ready for war.
1: Yeah.
0: And Neville Chamberlain was saying, no, you guys are wrong. We're going to have peace. Um, He invented the phrase the glamour boys because he couldn't actually point the finger and go you're a homosexual but he could imply and he was getting his friends in the media to hint that these people were homosexual because of course if they're outed their lives would be over. Um, And people like Churchill joined this group, people like Anthony Eden joined this group and slowly they became the group that agitated for uh, change of policy Mm. and it was sort of them versus Neville Chamberlain and eventually they were proved right and when the balloon did go up, they were the ones who were really ready for it inside the Conservative Party and inside the government and, and were able to push to get things really well. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of them then signed up to go to war and uh, in most cases met pretty unfortunate ends, and a number of them were outed during the course of their life and had equally mm-hmm. unpleasant ends. But I think the drama of a group like that pushing to fight Nazi, the Nazi machine and being told no... Would be a really good piece of drama, but also just relevant today. Yeah. You know that we need to be ready to call out and fight fascism. So that's a very, a very serious answer. I think it would make a fantastic movie. But The Glamour Boys is a really good book, and I encourage anyone interested in that to to read it. Another one that I thought of is a children's series by the New Zealand author Morris G, mm-hmm. which is The Half Men of O. Um, mm-hmm. it's a trilogy: The Half Men of O, The Priests of Ferris, and Motherstone. I read them when I was about eleven and was absolutely blown away by them. I suspect that if this wasn't done by an author in New Zealand in the 80s, they would absolutely be a big TV series or a film series of some sort. It's a whole nother world. It's a fantasy world. They've got the bird people and the stone people and the the goodies and the baddies and how this all happens and how Earth interacts with them. And, you know, it's the classic story, two Earth kids get dragged into this world and one of them could be the chosen one and Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. So that's a really good adventure. Look, it's a kid's story, but I'm... Really fond of it, and the half an answer is that whilst there have been many adaptions of *The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe*, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of *Prince Caspian*, a couple of *Voyage of the Dawn Treader*, the BBC TV series got as far as *The Silver Chair*, nobody has got to book six and done *The Magician's Nephew*, mm-hmm. and I think it's such a shame because I think that that is the best book in the series. Unfortunately, it is the sixth book in the series, so usually the uh, the adaptations. Peter out mm. uh, Look the film The recent film saga Petered out after Dawn Treader As I said the BBC TV one Got as far as the silver chair Look skip the silver chair Don't even bother with Horse and his boy mm. Somebody go and make us The magician's nephew
1: Very good Oh this next one is also From 42 to Doomsday <laughs> they've, they've been very kind to us The furnace has been fired up Two piles are in front of you Classic Who and New Who Which one do you burn forever Dave
0: Look, I could waffle and and, and obfuscate about this for for 10 minutes if I had to. I think everyone knows the answer. I would reluctantly burn New Who and I would keep Classic. Mm -hmm. It's the series that I grew up with. It's the series that I love. There's a lot of really good New Who. I know it's loved by a lot of people, but it doesn't have that personal connection with me. It wasn't part of my childhood, the way that Classic Who was. It wasn't part of my fandom when I was a teenager and in my Mm -hmm. 20s, the way that Classic Who was. So... I would be selfish and, and keep Classic Who, and you know I'll, I'd like to pretend that was a more difficult decision than it is, but it's not because I want to burn New Who, it's just because I love Classic Who so very much.
1: Yeah, I, I would be similar, uh, Classic Who for me, because it's where it started. To me, that's the most important thing. If I think of Star Trek, would I burn Original Series or Next Generation? I'd burn Next Generation. I bloody love Next Generation, but I think keeping the original of anything is probably the most important thing to do.
0: No, you see, I'll burn classic track and keep next gen.
1: Oh, my God. We've gone down a rabbit hole, We've folks. gone down
0: a rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, thank you for that. And um, I know that was meant to be a tough choice, but sorry. As I say, don't dislike New Who, just love classic mm. We have one here from Jethro Roos. Describe your ultimate sandwich.
1: Oh, it would be uh, a seafood concoction of some kind. It <laughs> It'd have like lobster and mayonnaise or something on it, something seafoodish. Maybe a sprinkle of uh, melted cheese in there. I, I don't know, but definitely savoury and seafoodish.
0: My go-to sandwich for most lunches, and this is a cliche, but Vegemite on wholemeal. Nice. I do love a nice Vegemite sandwich for Mark Cochrane
1: will be cheering at the moment. <laughs> he loves his Vegemite. He
0: does. Oh uh, yeah. So I do love my Vegemite sandwich. Ultimate sandwich. Look, if I was treating myself, I'd have white bread rather than wholemeal. I'd have to have bacon, Mm. probably add some chicken, Mm. and... um,
1: Any avocado?
0: No, no avocado. Okay. You know what? Bacon and chicken, I think, would be pretty cool. It is cool. And you don't need to overcomplicate a sandwich.
1: No. No, that's why I just have lobster and mayonnaise.
0: There you go. Thank you for that, (laughs) Jethro. (laughs) All
1: right, moving on. A question from Ian Martin. What would it take for Doctor Who to become as popular with the general TV viewer as it was in the noughties? And how would you bring that about?
0: That's an easy question, Ian. Thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that one of the things is that there is a chicken and an egg link between the popularity of Doctor Who and the scheduling of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Can Doctor Who get the big flagship ratings without being that classic Saturday evening prime time slot? Probably not. Does it get that slot unless it is getting the audiences to deserve that slot? Maybe not. So I think that that's hard. So so do you start by taking a risk and saying, what is the big attention-grabbing slot to put it in? Is that still 7 p.m. on a Saturday in the UK? I don't know, but if it is, do you say, right, let's start by putting in that slot and giving it a chance? Mm-hmm. The other thing is stuff that RTD seems to be doing. Number one, you cast a lead actor who brings an audience with them. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not to diminish any other actor, Jody Whittaker, Peter Capaldi, Christopher Eccleston in some ways, who didn't bring as big a cult following with them as David Tennant did. There were David Tennant fans who followed him to Doctor Who. There are Shooty Gatwa fans who are going to follow him to Doctor Who. Yeah. So I think the next thing you do, you schedule and you cast an actor who brings fans of that actor along with them, and probably, therefore, a name. Yeah. As much as I like the idea of Doctor Who being a place where a up-and-coming actor just breaking in and just becoming known gets their big break, and sometimes that can be really interesting and really cool, Matt Smith's a classic example, you need to have a name that people are going to go, wow, that's the Doctor yeah. they're going to come in. And the other thing is, I think you have to make a series that is, frankly, less what hardcore fans particularly lifetime classic fans like you and i rob want Mm -hmm. and you go back to what is it that people want to see people like soaps people like reality tv uh you look at something like vigil which had massive ratings in the uk yes that was on the one hand a story about a police detective on a submarine but it was very soapy Mm. very drama kind of lent in almost to that reality tv show of like who's going to get kicked off the show this week sort of thing that's the formula and whilst you and I might sit there and go I like our drier Doctor Who and I like our more sci-fi Doctor Who that sort of sense of more soap character driven has been proven to be successful and I think that's the path you'd go have to go down.
1: Yeah oh, I concur with all of what you said and my big point was going to be the lead actor not even so much in, as in them bringing their own audience but in terms of just having a very likeable, well-known lead actor, because people will tune in to see that kind of person read the phone book. Whereas if you've got a nobody, even if they're in a great story, they might not be going to get the viewers in. So I think it's it, it's always around the lead actor. And I think your additional comments about them bringing their audience and such is very good too. So for me, uh, and I'll just keep it brief on this one, the lead actor, the lead actor, the lead actor.
0: Yeah. And yeah. it's why sometimes whilst we, look as fans for a different or diverse piece of casting. As I've said on the show before, Hugh Grant is a middle-aged straight white man. Mm-hmm. You cast Hugh Grant, you get attention, you get an audience. Yeah. Uh, by the same token, you cast Tom Holland as the Doctor. He's not a most, the most diverse or different or interesting piece of casting, but a lot of people are going to turn in because it's Tom Holland. Daniel Radcliffe, people will turn in because it's Daniel Radcliffe. And that's a reality. What RTD has done, though, is he's found somebody who does bring an audience. who is in one of the big uh, streaming series of the moment. Mm-hmm. And he's also a piece of diverse casting and a different and potentially very weird doctor. And uh, Shidi Gatwa, I think, has ticked every box anybody could ask. And that's probably why his casting, with the exception of a very, very, very small minority in the dark corners of fandom, has been so universally popular yep. and seen as a really good
1: move. Yeah, I mean you'd expect Russell to say this but he says he did something absolutely extraordinary in the casting process and I just wonder what that was, you know, yeah. what what does he what has he done to catch Russell's eye? I look forward to the Blu-ray releases one day when that footage is yeah. footage is released. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: our next question is also from Mark Cochran. This is clearly uh, aimed at you, Rob, and your work on the Beatles World Cup podcast, oh. because he says, Why are Abbey Road and Revolver unquestionably better than the vastly inferior rubber Soul?
1: <laughs> Mark, 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 Mark. Um, first off, I would say that Rubber Soul is not inferior. It's a great Beatles album. It's my favourite Beatles album. Equally, though, Abbey Road and Revolver are very, very, very good albums. In fact, they'd probably get into my top five easily. Revolver would be my number two, for example. So this is this is hard for me to talk about in terms of them facing off against each other. But what I'll say about Rubber Soul is that Rubber Soul, the production value, is incredible. So what you have is earlier Beatles albums, if you think of like, I don't know, Beatles for Sale or A Hard Day's Night or Help or something, have a certain kind of songwriting and a certain kind of production. When you get to Rubber Soul, you still have the same kind of songwriting, but it's with better production. And I think we're hearing a new sort of Beatles sound, particularly Paul's bass is really great on Rubber Soul. And I think it's a way to sort of hear the last gasp of the early Beatles recorded really really well and that's why I like it when you get to Revolver and you've got something like Taxman you know with the one two three four intro and all that that's something that wouldn't happen on an early Beatles album they're starting to get experimental at that point so although it's a great album although the production's great on Revolver you're now into a new phase of Beatles whereas on Rubber Soul it's right on that cusp it's still early-ish Beatles but recorded really well and I'm here for it (laughs) that, that off-the-cuff <laughs>
0: I know that question was aimed at you, Rob, but I'll look, also just answer by saying I'm going to go Mark with none of the above. Oh, shit. Because my, fa- <laughs> my favourite uh, Beatles album is Let It Be. I love so many songs on that, but I'm also yeah. a big fan of the Phil Spector sound. Oh. Look, I know Phil Spector is a horrible human being, yes. but whether it's Phil Spector do it working on Let It Be, you go back to his early work with uh, the Ronettes and stuff like that, I'm a big fan of that, but I love the songs as well. I think Sgt. Pepper's a great album. I know it's kind of become a bit trendy to, to call out its imperfections lately, but I do think Sgt. Pepper's a great album. But also the really early Beatles work I love. I just I love going to that, that very first album, all oh, those yeah. compilations, and hearing the evolution from Love Me Do to Please Please Me, She Loves You, mm-hmm. and then sort of just like breaking out and becoming the real Beatles we know. I, I love all that, that early 60s pop and... Mm-hmm. And just coming out. So uh, I would actually go for a number of albums that were not even listed by either of you.
1: <laughs> well, that's a contrary answer. Uh, next question is from Tim at Tim Smith Guy on Twitter. He says, favorite music in all of who? If we're going for one
0: little piece of music, mm. I think I have to pick the Running Through Paris theme from City of Death. You know, the, running through Paris, we're running through Paris. That, that one, I think that's that's just fantastic. Probably my favourite composer for Doctor Who is Dominic Glynn. Mm-hmm. You look at some of his stuff like the big orchestral swells he does for the space shots in Dragonfire, the harmonica music he does in Happiness Patrol, yeah. the big guitar stuff that he does in Survival, which, look, it seems a little bit passé now, but I remember as fans us watching Survival and going... Doctor, who has never done this before. Like hard electric guitars doing the soundscape. So that's really, really good. I like the pan flutes and stuff from Frontios. And if I had to go for another particular few minutes of music, the last few minutes of Legopolis, the stuff with the doctor having the fight with the master, Mm -hmm. then the first flashback scene, coming down the scale as the camera comes down to Thomas Baton body. Yeah, and then just just the, the swelling of the music into those few notes of the themes, he regenerates and it ends. That's a classic few minutes of Doctor Who music for me.
1: Yeah, that's all good stuff. So I won't I won't run back over that um that area. I'm gonna throw in I like stuff like when they whack on a bit of space adventure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it has become so iconic to black and white Doctor Who. You hear space adventure, and you go that is black and white Doctor Who, even if it wasn't particularly written for it. Yes, you know. Yes. So I, I love that sort of thing when you can just pick out a piece of music, stock music, and it, it is so Doctor Who. And look, in, in the modern series, I'm going to say something controversial, Dave. Murray, you must emote now gold, yeah gets panned so often. But he did some very stirring, clever, moving little bits and pieces here and there. And I'm probably downplaying it to some people out there who absolutely bloody love their Murray gold. So I'm trying to just straddle the fence here. <laughs> I think Murray Gold wrote some some really good pieces of of modern televisual music stuff that doesn't work at all if you place it against uh, classic era footage. Yeah. You know, because it's from a completely different era of television. But for this era of television, and for the fact that they could take it out to the proms and play it, and have thousands of like eight year old children looking up at a screen. Looking at footage of Doctor Who while orchestral music plays, it's like, how on earth did this happen? And it's because he wrote some some good tunes. So I'm going to call out Murray Gold, maybe not as like my particular favourite, but as someone who who did do good and who does get slagged off, probably quite a lot actually. So I'll toss him a bone here.
0: Very good. Our next question is from Mark Crocram and it's also music related. He says, who would be your pick? for the music composer for the RTD2 era?
1: I was looking at this one earlier, and I don't have a pre-prepared answer because I don't actually know a lot of composers. I mean, sure, if you talk about certain movies, like particularly Star Wars and things like that, I know John Williams did Star Wars. You talk about Gladiator. I know Hans Zimmer did that, you know, and, and I know composers, but in terms of jobbing TV composers, I have no idea. You know, I would have watched a lot of TV lately. I couldn't tell you who composed any of it. I, I watched some Rings of Power last night. I couldn't tell you who does that. I, I watched Andor earlier in the week. That's got a great soundtrack. Yeah. I love the soundtrack on that. I don't know who does it. So I, I'm one of those people who doesn't have a lot, in inverted commas, of composers in their head to even answer this question, to be honest.
0: Yeah, look, I, I'm probably a bit similar to you, but I'll, I'll pull out a couple of sort of ones I do know. If I had a money truck to back up to Hans Zimmer's house and say, please do the music for Doctor Who, I would back up that truck to Hans Zimmer. He's done some of my favourite movie scores. I think about uh, The Rock, Crimson Tide. Uh, He did all of the score of The Lion King that uh, wasn't the songs that uh, Elton John and Timothy Rice wrote. So, look, Hans Zimmer would be my dream composer. If I look at other ones that I've noted over the years christoph beck who did buffy yep he did some wonderful pieces of music there um i think that his soundtrack to stuff like you know lie to me the gift you know really really amazing pieces of music and christopher frank who did babylon Five.
1: Oh god yes
0: and was really i think in some ways at the the forefront of that really big orchestral soundtrack that wasn't just mood music you know you think about a lot of the, the, the tricks of that sort of era and it's good music but it's all very sort of formulaic it's background music it's style. yeah it's 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 a certain style it's a certain vibe yeah. whereas Babylon 5 has actual soundtracks for different episodes and you can sell those soundtracks as individual cds so
1: what's the story you, you're going to know the story what's the story jms is talking to christopher frank he's probably in like germany or something they're on the telephone and he says oh you know what do you need for this for this and JMS has "Give me tears or something.
0: So it was when they did the music for In the Beginning, the special. Yeah. And they have the bit where the Minbari are coming and everybody thinks Earth's going to be wiped out. And they're trying to evacuate the population of Earth. Yeah. And they do this huge montage. And, yes, JMS just said to um, Frank, break our hearts. Break our hearts? Break our hearts. That's it. And that's what he did. And that is a superb piece of music. It is.
1: Yeah. It is. Ah, okay. Next question is from Fraser Gregory at Felix Fraser. He asks, goblins or hobgoblins?
0: I have no idea if this is a reference to anything or he's just a big (laughs) fan of goblins and hobgoblins. I don't really have a strong opinion, but I really enjoyed playing HeroQuest when I was a boy. And... uh, (laughs) One of the characters in that were the goblins. They, yeah. they, I think they you know could move 10 and had you know one dice in defense, one dice in attack. They uh-huh. were the ultimate minions. so I'm going to say goblins for
1: that reason. All right, well I'll go with hobgoblins then just to be contrary because they were the uh, I think I think I'm right in saying hobgoblins are bigger. They may be smarter. Okay. I'm not saying in hero quest specifically, sure. but in, in mythology. I think they're bigger and smarter and the goblins might be the minions of the Hobgoblins. So maybe they've got a bit more character. I don't know. I'm think,
0: just making it up. I think we've done our best with that. So thank you, Fraser, for, for sending that in. Uh, a question from Richard, my fellow podcaster on the Spacefall podcast. He says, who unlocked the cellar door in Fendal?
1: if it's not Clara? Well, it was Clara. <laughs> that,
0: that, that, that's my
1: answer. Because <laughs> I don't know the answer, really. So let's go with Clara. <laughs> uh, I
0: think it was Stiles mm-hmm. because he needs fear to become the core which means he needs the doctor out of the way and so that's why he lets the doctor out get him to go out of the way so he can get on with what he's doing in the Priory I I think that's what Boucher is trying to do in that story.
1: I'll go with that Fair enough
0: (laughs) Uh, We have one from Suki Kark who is one of the co-hosts of uh, the Check This Out podcast that I gave a plug to earlier. Yes. He says have you ever walked out of a screening of a film?
1: Uh, Short answer no. No. I haven't. Uh, if, if I go into a film, I'm there for the duration. Or maybe I just pick films that I know I want to see and I'm, I'm not liable to walk out of. But no, I never have.
0: I haven't either. I have walked out of a film and written an angry letter to the paper. Yeah? Uh, that was Mel Gibson's The Patriot.
1: Was it after it finished?
0: Yes. Right. Okay. So I, I, I walked out, I watched the whole thing, I walked out and I went home and I wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper saying The Patriot was horrible, it was anti-English, it was anti-historical... <laughs> Um, I was like, you know, a first year uni student at the time and right. fired up about the world. So, yeah, yeah. so I did that and it got published. So so that does exist out there uh, somewhere. Um, George Clooney's The Descendants. I was bored witless through that and came very close to walking out. Mm-hmm. But like you, Rob, if I go to a movie and I pay the money, I will watch it to the end. Yeah. Um, although sometimes they are a
1: bit of a struggle. Well, you see a lot more films at the cinema. Than me In terms of s- films in general, we probably see as much as each other, because I watch a lot at home, but you see a lot at the cinema first release, so this is this was a, re- a question for you, I think.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll see 40-plus films a year yeah, in a that, normal year.
1: That's insane. And, and,
0: and I think that having gone to the cinema to appreciate the film, I, I don't feel like I can walk out, or I should walk out, and I guess I'm always hopeful that there'll be something to save it at the end, or just want to know how it ends, so... No, um, I will say that back in the day, American Beauty came out, mm-hmm. and everybody raved about American Beauty, so when it came out on VHS, I paid the, you know, exorbitant brand new release fee to watch this classic Oscar-winning piece, and I had to watch that in about four goes. Yeah. It was so, so terrible.
1: I didn't mind that one, but what you're saying describes me watching Magnolia. Yes, fair enough. That took about four goes for me.
0: Fair enough, but, um... Given what we now know about <laughs> Spacey, sorry, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, um, I don't feel bad not enjoying American Beauty.
1: That's fine. And finally, Dave, we have a long question here, which I, I believe you might be going to take under advisement. Yes. Uh, I'll get through the question first, and then we can discuss it. It's from Mark Cochran, and he says, David is installed as the showrunner for a revival of Blake 7. Who will he cast as Blake, Avon, Villa?" Jenna, Callie, Tarrant, Oric slash Zen, and, and Mark, and Mark Hock- <laughs> <laughs> Uh
0: Look, thank you, Mark. That's a really awesome question, and I will take it on notice because I want to do it justice. Uh, I just can't sit here off the top of my head and pluck eight names out of the ether, and they just won't be very good. So what I'm going to do is take this away, think about it, and at the end of our next monthly episode, I'll do a couple of minutes devoted to the answer to your question.
1: I think it'll be a very interesting answer.
0: Yeah, I think it will be as well. Look, I've got some ideas, but as I say, I really want to do what justice and pick the best ones. Mm. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that, Mark, but I'll take that on
1: notice. And, Rob, that's our last question. It is the last question. Thank you so much to everyone who who gave us questions over social media. It was very short notice, I know. That's how we roll sometimes. (laughs) It is. So, look, when we are in the same city, if we can do it, we like to have a bit of a catch-up.
0: You know, we have been chatting off microphone. for Quite a while. We should have recorded that as well. Oh, uh, not given some of the um, some of the stories I told.
1: <laughs> yeah, true.
0: <laughs> there are libel laws and probably wouldn't go down too well. But no, look, just a bit of a spontaneous uh, thing without a topic that needs research, just us having a chat with the mic on.
1: Absolutely. So until you hear from us next, which will be uh, an episode of the List Makers next week, I've been Rob and I've been Dave, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.